The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex episode 173 on the com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the com website. Follow us on Twitter at oneouter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash oneouter. This episode and all other previous episodes or on oneouter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for the show, then please email questions at oneouter.com, or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group, and we will get them read out on a future show. Alex, it's Thursday again. It's that time. How are you doing? Don't sound so enthusiastic, Barry. Uh, It's that time again. Uh, We're here... Everyone, I was at the doctor's earlier, but we've already covered that off air. How's everybody doing? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's good to be here. How you doing, Barry? You feeling better? Yeah, I am. I'm feel I'm feeling better. I'm I'm fighting fit and and fighting the the good fight. Although it's all in vain because it looks like World War Three is a way to kick off between uh, <laughs> Russia, Syria, Britain, America, and anybody else. Iran. Everyone's going to pile in. So. Um, yeah, that should be interesting, but it's funny Look, because... Once we initiate some common sense knife control, everything's going to be fine, all right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny, I was talking with someone, I said, I joked, I said, yeah, we're World War Three, and they said, oh, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, the situation in Syria and stuff, and they were completely oblivious. And I mm. said, that must be great, like, it's true, you shouldn't follow the news and that, but with smartphones and Twitter especially, you know, if you're on Twitter... I notice myself going, sh- and people are retweeting things. It's very hard to avoid the news if you're also using Twitter and you're following more than one person. You know, it's like um, you quickly become absorbed in it. But I did a thing actually last week, in the last few weeks, I catch myself, I mean, we've talked about smartphones and things lots of times, but I caught myself sitting just scrolling on Twitter and re- I was like, whoa, whoa, I don't mind it when I'm reading like nice articles that I think can help my life or business, but literally just going through the feed going, you know, taking all this in. And I made a little promise with myself. I said, when I catch myself doing that, I'm instantly putting my phone down and picking up the book I'm reading and spending the time reading the book rather than Twitter. You know, because it's it's crazy how you can just suddenly find yourself spent half an hour just doing nothing. Literally, and actually not doing nothing. Doing nothing would be a form of meditation that we touched on last week. That would, act, <laughs> that would actually be healthy. You're taking in absolute crap and verbal diarrhea on a mass scale. You know, it's crazy. But we're all guilty of it, I think. I used to read the newspaper start to finish for years, and then at after I stopped having time for that, I would listen to a news podcast I liked every night for about an hour. And just recently, I stopped 
all of it. Because yeah. like you said, you're going to hear about it anyway. And if there's a big news story that comes up on my Google alerts or whatever it is, if it's a very major event, it comes up. But yeah. If you hear the missile sirens, you know, the, fu- the four-minute yeah. warning or whatever, you'll know about you it. You know yeah. what, man? <laughs> I was in the Czech Republic, and they still have the air raid horns. Yeah. Uh, and they, I pulled an all-nighter working, and I went to bed, and at, that was right after Russia uh, annexed Crimea, Crimea. And then I heard the air raid sirens, and I went, oh, my God, dude, <laughs> I'm an American, and Putin's coming for what's his, right? But it's, it's no joke is what I'm telling you. It's scary. But oh, yeah. I, with the weird thing is, is if you don't follow the news, if you live in a first world country like uh, the United Kingdom or the United States, it just doesn't exist. I know a lot of people – I still keep – abreast of major issues, but I know tons of people, like you said, like your friend, who just knows nothing about Syria, nothing about anything, and almost in a way, I can't blame them, because as the old adage goes, the man who doesn't read the newspaper is uninformed, and the man who does read the paper is misinformed, Mm. so there's no real way to win. Yeah, yeah, especially nowadays, like you say, with your phone, you can't avoid it, Um, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, someone else posting things, or even your phone, like a little news feature when you swipe to the right sometimes or whatever on, on my iPhone, it brings up headlines from various papers, and some of them are ridiculous. They aren't even, like, world mm. events. You're going, what is this crap? But, yeah, file the news is the advice that a lot of top traders and business people give you, which is basically don't read it, because, like you said, you can't, influence it you don't know if it's true in research it's their narrative and yeah it can affect the way you think sometimes and there's really no upside because you will find out you know if if someone's assassinated you'll find out even if you're not checking it on your <laughs> smart if it's world war three or if there's major things if some celebrity has been caught having an affair you don't really need to know it anyway you know it's not going to change your life um, well oh yeah on you go well, yeah, I, I feel like this pertains to poker, too, because your mental health really affects how you're going to play cards. Mm. So I'm noticing something where many poker players, I went to, a, this guy is doing a short little film, I don't even know if you'd call it a film, like a vignette, where he just wanted to talk to some online poker players and uh, live poker players, and he asked if I would come in, so I came in, and uh, he, he was a nice guy, so I went to do his little shoot over the weekend, and he said I invited four guys, like, pretty high on the poker rank, and so I was expecting 24-year-olds, uh, like I've always seen online pros, and all of them were in their 30s, and it's occurring to me now, I don't see as many guys under the age of 25 in poker as I did 10 years ago. Obviously, maybe I noticed it a bit more because I was under the age of 25 at that time and I hung out with more people my age. But I, I do feel as if the younger generation is a little bit more depressed. And I think you touched upon it. It's all the smartphones. There's this book called iGen. And it's about, this is the woman who wrote 
the narcissism epidemic. And she essentially said everything that was going to happen with millennials before it happened. And in, in my opinion, she did. Or she was one of the writers on that book. Mm-hmm. And it really helped me tailor my training to help that group. And she just wrote a book about the generation coming after the millennials, which she calls iGen, because she makes a point which I'd never thought of. They have never known <coughs> the world without the Internet, and since they were in grade school, they haven't known a world without smartphones. Mm-hmm. Now, you think of that, that's pretty amazing. If you think of all the access kids have these days that we did not have, in all the ways to ruin your mind, like when we were 14 year, years old, Barry, we couldn't watch hardcore porn on a site like YouTube. We couldn't watch ISIS beheadings, right? And you know teenagers, like how stupid boys can be. They're getting into stuff like that. And one of the things they found is suicide rates for people who are younger are climbing really steadily. And... She hypothesizes it's due to all the smartphone use because when they do independent studies where people, you know, one group of people, they say, okay, you read this physical book. And another group of people, they say, okay, we want you on your smartphone two hours at night. Depression rates skyrocket for the smartphone group. So I almost feel as if it's a part of my job where I have my cell phone once a day I, once a day, I do text messages. That's it, right? Ten minutes, that's it. Otherwise, I'm going to be on my phone all damn day. And it's like being a doctor. When pagers first came out, you're just always on call. And it never ends. And the news cycle, I think, feeds into this where now they can make so much more money getting you to click on things through your smartphone. They just throw anything at you that you'll click at, right? Yeah. This person slept with this person and that's going to get that. So I almost understand people who say I'm done with the news because I I think honestly, when people complain about Donald Trump being president, I always want to say you created that. You don't watch news websites. You, I mean, you don't read news websites. You don't watch the news on TV. You don't, read the newspaper. Therefore, the only way a presidential candidate is ever going to get in front of your eyes is if he gets in the Twitter news cycle. That's not something Hillary Clinton did. That's something Bernie Sanders did and Donald Trump did expertly, both of them. I don't even know if they knew they were doing that, right? But it's because we're feeding the lowest common denominator because that's the only way we can live. We're all guilty of this. Barry's guilty of this. And this happened to me yesterday. I was just tired after a lesson. So I was skimming Facebook for 10, 15 minutes. And it just hit me like a rock. Like, you're not doing anything right now, dude. Sit down. I don't know if you'd call it meditating. I just closed my eyes and focused on my breathing for 10 minutes. Then I got up and, you know, tried to do laundry or something productive. But I think the human mind's just susceptible to it, and we shouldn't hate ourselves for it. Just like we don't say, oh, you're such a bad person. You like sugar. Like your body's programmed to like sugar. I, I like quick hits of fun information, too. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want to know why Hollywood won't cast Brendan Fraser anymore? 
We all want to know, right? And we will click through 12 slides to figure it out. But I think if you want to be good at poker or good at anything in life, you have to have that self-discipline to say, okay, the cell phone goes off right now. Like, when I do lessons, the cell phone is in my desk. When I'm at, at the gym, the cell phone's not with me. When I'm playing, the cell phone's not with me. And just turning it off for periods of time. But, yeah, anyway, we're getting into – there seems to be a theme that keeps growing in this show, the mindfulness, the getaway from technology and stuff, which is pretty funny from two guys who like, you know – Live on the end. Uh, <laughs> horror movies and crap like that, you know? Yeah, well, what I think's really funny is – in, or what I think is rather important is let's talk about news that people want to know and that's news of what you've been up to and <laughs> what's happening with uh, Alex Poker World and stuff. I'm looking forward to Vegas and I saw Daniel Negrano's released his uh, schedule or something. Uh, here's more. You see, this is the news filter. This was filtered into me. That, that Daniel Negrano has released his schedule and it was actually a Facebook ad, a Hendon Mob Facebook ad, believe it or not, said uh, it's $2 million it's going to be he's spending this summer. Um, what's your sort of like thoughts and schedule and stuff? Whatever, man. I, I, I don't know. This is, <laughs> like, I love Daniel Negreanu because I think he's great for the game, but I, I have no comment on it. Not because I think it's a, an unworthy endeavor, but it's, it's one of those things, like, if you told me I'm really into Dungeons and Dragons, I'll go, cool, let me tell you my schedule for playing Dungeons and Dragons. Like, even if I'm into Dungeons and Dragons, I'm, I'm kind of wondering why I need to know yeah. your schedule for playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, I get there's a lot of money in this game of Dungeons and Dragons, but... It's just a game at the end of the day. We're not that important, you know? Uh, but for those of you, on the, on the other side of the coin, to be fair to Negreanu, like if there was a podcast where a CFL quarterback went through his travails of trying to keep a starting job and keeping in shape and what games he was going to play, I'd listen to that. So I think it's cool Negrano put that out there. It's just weird for me being in the same industry. Does that make sense, Barry? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go I, ahead. I think the weird thing about Negrano is recently is I've noticed, I still follow him on Twitter, and you said you love Daniel Negrano. Like, I don't love Daniel Negrano. I, I, I don't follow him on Twitter. What's he doing? <laughs> yeah. I, I respect him, but I think there's a lot recently that personally just makes me think mm, it's kind of off a lot of the stuff he tweets and that i i, I wouldn't go into it it's right. not the place really but yeah it's i respect what he's done in the game and the sacrifices he's made to become the top and still is one of the top players in the world um so i respect the guy but yeah i definitely don't um sort of look up to him or yeah i get that type, well, you know i love negranu and i love helmy with the same reason i love new yorkers like, maybe I don't want them at my dinner table screaming at me, but I do appreciate that they have their own way of being. And I think if you're going to enjoy this life, you've got to come around and just love people for who they are. Yeah. And just in the same way, like, if there was a really funny video game character when you were playing something, you'd go, God, this guy's ridiculous, right? But you love him for doing it, right? And 
I, I guess love, you don't have to understand somebody to love them. There's a lot of things Negreanu says that are really puzzling to me. And I don't know what's going on, but I, I just love the guy anyway because he's out there and I know how scary that is. Like, I don't post much to Twitter because you can't post anything without offending 100 people. And he just doesn't care. And to be yeah. fair, we need more people like that. And no, I don't. The other thing is, I don't have to agree with everything you say for me to love you, right? That's, that's the big deal. There's a lot of things. My sister and I are completely opposite on political views, right? There's sometimes she, talk, she talks about it, and I, I go, I don't get this, I don't get that, I don't understand, I don't agree. But I love her for, you try to find the thing you can love about them, which is my sister really cares about people, and this is, in her world, what's going to help them. And Nagarana seems to really care about poker, and I appreciate that. And maybe I don't always see eye to eye, but I like that. Um, as far as my schedule, uh, got to play online poker tonight. Big deal for me. <laughs> so mm. excited about that. But, uh, Cash or tournaments? Huh? I'm sorry? Cash or tournaments? Tournaments are America's Carter tournaments. The best yeah. tournaments there are. But, uh, yeah. They are pretty big. I like them. But, yeah, uh, uh, no, I'm not actually planning on playing a lot because I love playing, but it's hard to find the time to do it because my day job is fairly demanding and my day job is pretty fun. My, my day job is teaching people how to play poker, and it's a pretty fun job, but it's a very demanding job. So I haven't thought of Vegas uh, I love playing poker in Montreal. I'm not going up to their $10 million guaranteed. Uh, I'm going to try to get... There was an event. There was a WCP circuit event in New Jersey I really wanted to play. I'm not going to that. I didn't go to that. It's uh, it's tough because I never got into this game to be a big poker player. I got into this for a living, a living that probably wasn't accessible I mean, excuse me, a living that was accessible to someone who could, didn't have a college degree, couldn't afford to get one. It, it, it's very amazing to me because I remember when I was 18 years old and people said, oh, you got to get your college education. I, I didn't really know what to study. And then I read the loans and I thought, this is pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> So I tried to find another field to go into, and everybody thought I was crazy to go into poker, but I, I thought it was kind of crazy to take out a student loan that, in a subject you really didn't know that well or didn't know if you wanted to work in. You might get done with a degree and do two years on a job and not know if you want it. And I, I knew I enjoyed poker, and I could see the people who had a lot of money in poker, and I thought, I can do that, right? And now I have a job in poker, and I love it. I, I love it, and I'm, I'm really loving, I'm, I'm writing the book right now, I'm writing most days, like 5,000 words, the other day I got up to 8,000 words, uh, it's a little ragged, but I have faith it'll look good, and I'm at the point in my career I can do less lessons if I don't want to, or I can do just do a couple lessons a day, and I can work on my projects the rest of the day, and I find that much more fulfilling than sitting around playing cards all day. I, I, I love playing cards, but playing cards, there's a reason most people do it once a week. It's, it, 
it's just like when I play Tetris on my PlayStation, like I like playing Tetris for a little while. I don't like and maybe once a week I'll play a video game all night, but I'm not going to play video games all week mm-hmm. every day. That's that's a little different. And there was a time, yeah, yeah, when you're a teenager, your early 20s, you have the energy, you have a lot of time. You don't really have dependence. You don't really have anybody to depend on you. Go ahead, play as much as you want. But, yeah, right now I got my mom to take care of. I got, I got bills. Uh, and, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun teaching people how to play poker, having a lot of fun writing this book. And uh, I'll probably go play the main event in Vegas. I, I love the main event. I, if I could, I'd be out there a, a lot longer. But it's just not that important to me to win, uh, win the hardware. Like, I want it. Don't get me wrong. But I think that's going to come. It's probably going to come in another season of my life. I'm going to keep playing poker, stay current, try to play poker, at least some cash games and stuff every day, play tournaments uh, when I can, and stay current. But I think it's going to be another season in my life when I have a lot more in savings that I'm going to play more poker, and I see things working out at that time. But until that time, I'm not sweating it. I, I really worry a lot of people feel like they're not anyone without a poker win. And and that that really, in the immortal words of John Candy in Cool Runnings, if you're nothing without it, you're not going to be anything with it. It's uh, you, you, that's got to be something that complements your life. And right now, I'm getting to the point where I'm having a life that could be easily complemented, which is, uh, and complemented with two e's, by the way, not i m e, but uh, I. I'm really relaxed right now, Barry. Like I, <laughs> I, I love my apartment. I love working. At night, I really like hanging out with my lady. You know, we play, we play PlayStation. We read. We, we watch. I'm, I'm loving Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. That show is amazing. If you have not checked it out on Netflix, I would really recommend it. It's actually a really sweet show. If you guys haven't checked it out, it's really cute. How they take these guys that feel really bad about themselves and help them find their masculinity again. But yeah, I'm chilling, man. Life is good. I've got no complaints. What you up to? Um, just listening to you talk about Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. I, I, show, I, that's bro. an old show, is it not? Huh? Is that not a really old show? I remember that from years ago. Show. They rebooted it. It's right. awesome, though, dude. It's, yeah. they, like, they teach the guy how to dress, and it's... It, they teach the guy how to dress. They teach the guy how to cook. They teach the guy how to take care of his house, how to take care of himself, how to manage himself with social media. And so, and I'm watching, I'm watching this, and I go, I'm, I'm learning a lot from this. This is really, cool. and yeah, they all have a really bad hair game, so they got to work on that. But it's a cool show because it it really shows off what's good about America. Like obviously, the cast is five gay guys, but. One of the first people they help out is an older man who's a cop who happens to be a Trump supporter, right? And I, I feel like I have a duty to watch this show because it's about people coming together and working for a better cause and to better themselves. And I always said I would support content like this that really wasn't divisive like everything is in the United States right now just to do a little clickbait. So when it comes around, I can't really be a hypocrite and not check it out. And yeah, I dig the show, bro. 
Okay. Um, mentioned, mentioned, but, but. Let's, uh, let's, let's no, talk. I, I remember it years ago. I mean, I'm talking probably... I'm Go ahead. <laughs> Probably 15 years ago or more, I remember it being on yeah. like one of the ch- digital channels in the UK, and it was like reruns of it. And it, yeah, I remember watching the odd episode and thinking. It was I was watching a rerun with my lady on YouTube. Yeah, we're really into it. And like, dude, the clothes. Because of course, the guys that are out of date in 2003, you don't think about it, but they're still dressing like it's the early 90s. Bro, what the hell were we thinking? Like the, what was it? The puka shells, the gel tips, the sunglasses indoors, the, the what was it? The button ups. Like it is ridiculous. Like it's a, it, it was hilarious. But yeah. Anyway, all right. Let's talk cards. Yeah. Let's get into the questions. Yes, okay. Sir. Um, this one is from G, I think. This one from G or the other one from G? Yeah, no, I wasn't not. sure if he wanted to be anonymous or not. No, so it's okay. It's okay. Name, Sorry. So. The first one is from Roger, actually. I, okay. I, that's what was confusing me, the way it's typed here. The first one is from Roger. Hey, Alex. Roger here again. Recreational live 1-2, to 1-3 player. In one of your videos, you had mentioned live players could use a three-barrel bet size. Of 90% flop, 70% turn, 50% river. While I like the big flop C bet to get people to fold out when I miss, my last session I flopped the effective nuts twice and got folds by betting 90% flop when I wanted calls. Now in the free article I got today, the 24th of March, you mentioned one third bets on flop when you want calls. If I'm betting big on flops when I want folds, and small on flops when I want calls. Isn't this going to be an obvious and exploitative really quickly? All thoughts, always appreciated, and thanks as always. I'm very angry at you right now, Roger. I'm just kidding. But I feel like there was... I probably provided a little context there, which I hope would clarify this. Uh... First off, but you have really good questions, Roger. I'm just teasing you. Is it, I'm teasing you because I've heard this question no less than 18,000 times in my life. One, everybody says, I have a part of my new book discussing why I think all the GTO stuff is a terrific way of giving non-answers to questions and defending yourself. So, Because if somebody says, Okay, I have 7-8 offsuit. I raise the button, the big blind calls. The board comes jack 7-3. Should I see bet there or not? In my mind, there's a right answer depending on the guy you're playing against because most likely you're only going to see a situation like this one time with the guy. Uh, most of the time when people play cash games at a casino, it's a rotating cast of people. In tournaments, it's a rotating cast of people. You don't really have to bring in the GTO stuff until you're playing with someone consistently who is also aware, right? And it's going to be most of us only play poker a couple days a week, which means we don't have to balance nearly as much because by the next time we play with a guy, nine guys out of ten aren't going to remember what you did last Friday. That being said, it's really easy as a coach for me to say, oh, you should bet there 60% of the time and you should check there 40% of the time because is that the correct answer? Yeah, 
probably that's GTO optimal. Now, is that going to – now, let's say the other guy on the table – GTO means your other – you're assuming the other guy plays perfectly, right? And you're trying to take advantage of someone uh, or you're trying to be unexploitable, right? That His words, we'll use his words. Doesn't this become exploitable right away? So if becoming exploitable is bad, then being unexploitable is good, which means – Nobody can take advantage of you even if they play perfectly. That would be however you divide up checks and bats in that situation. Now, let's say on the other side of the coin, I mean, excuse me, on the other side of the felt, we have, uh, uh, we have Barry Chalmers who never folds any two cards or what, whoever you want to call this fictional player. Let's say we got somebody watching rugby, whoever he is, and... He just doesn't like folding ace highs in the flop, and he doesn't like folding any pairs on the turn. And on the river, he's been known to hero call. Well, versus that guy, I don't think you should be checking 40% of the time. I, I think you should be betting 100% of the time until he adjusts. Now, did you just make yourself exploitable? Yes, of course. If someone knows you're betting everything on the flop, they could potentially take advantage of it. They could check raise top pairs for value. Now that you're betting second pair no kicker for value, they have quite a bit to get value from. You have made yourself exploitable. Is it likely to happen? What, what, when was the last time you check-raised top pair for value? A number of people you play against make themselves exploitable, and you do nothing about it. And versus the – you guys are thinking – poker players as well. You are listening to a poker podcast right now. I would bet dollars to donuts. This is not the only podcast you listen to. You read strategy posts. You are not, in the scenario I just gave you, which you have seen a hundred times in your life, you are not doing the counter move. What are the chances your opponents are doing the counter move? Now, the 90, 70, 50 bet size that I, I brought up, and to your credit, Roger, in your defense, I probably did not discuss it to the best of my abilities. Sometimes what I will do versus a guy who really does not like folding on the flop is I'll bet 90% there. If he's one of these guys who's a little testy, doesn't like folding his high cards, doesn't like folding any pair... I'll bet 90%. And I don't do that this often, but I, I'll do it. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say that same board. We'll say Jack 7-3, and I have King Jack, and I'm in the cutoff, and the button called me, and the button's kind of a – he's a little angry. Right? He, he, we, you, we know these guys at the card room. Just, you know the C-bet's not getting, not getting through. Well, versus that guy, I'm going to bulk up on my C-bet because in this guy's world, people C-bet the flop to get him off of his hand. And he's not going to let that happen, damn it. So he calls you. And then the turn bet is 70%. And a lot of times they go, oh, that's not as big. Okay, I'll call here with my whatever pair. And then on the river, you bet half bot. Now they feel ridiculous folding the half bot when they call 90 on the flop. So they call. At the very end, they don't realize it because you go, voila, that pot is 
huge, right? Now, there are other times, let's say, let's say I got, let's do that same situation. I've got King Jack, Mortis Jack 7-3. I'm playing a Venetian at the World Series, and I've got, I, I've got an older gentleman who uh, is kind of shuffling his cards and, uh, underneath his fingertips. Little jumping, I've seen him fold a couple flop, flops to flop C-bats. I need him to call right here. I need him to call on the flop because once you get people to call on the flop, they're very bad at folding turn and river. That might be a time I bet one-third for value. Now, let's say I have nothing. I might bet one-third there as well, and then hopefully he calls me with all of his ace highs. Maybe not versus this guy, the jumpy guy, but let's say I've got a 35-year-old pro there who could go either way with his ace, right? A little more mellow. If I bet one-third, he's not folding ace high. He's not folding king high a lot of the time. But then on the turn, I bet a little bit more than half pot or whatever. Now he's going to fold his ace high, king high. Woo! I just grabbed some money. As you can see, all these plays have reversals. All these plays have a point, and all of these plays, to use your word, are exploitable. But as you could hear with the one-third bet, there could be alternating reasons to do both. And even though, if, if you knew why I was doing it, yes, you could exploit me, but it's the same bet on the surface, and most of the information you're going to get is my bet size. Most people are very poor at facial tells, myself, in, myself included. Facial tells, body tells, what have you. So most of the content is going to be in the bet size, and we just illustrated two different ways the one-third C-bet could be used. One intensely for value, one intensely as a bluff. We're operating off of a very short sample size here where two times we bet for value and two times the people didn't call. I'm also guessing you didn't have a very testy client you were trying to get action from. You probably had a regular Joe and he saw 90% bet and went, whoa! And he folded his ASI, which would have been great if you had nothing, because your bet would have needed to work a little less than 50% of the time. And if he's folding his baby pairs and A-size, he's folding 55% of the time plus. But maybe when we had a value hand, it didn't work. Perhaps this is a balanced strategy because that's a C-bet you want to do as a bluff, and now you did it for value. But you don't like it as that counterbalance to that bet. Therefore, we're always trying to think about, I guess the bottom line of this, I was kind of dancing back and forth between, look, you could do this bet for this reason or that bet for that reason, but we need to be clear about it. But what I really need to underline here at the ending is it is about manipula manipulating your opponent's range. You must think of what are they calling with pre-flop? How am I going to get as much as possible to call me on the flop? You are specifically saying on value bets, what, what do I bet? Whatever gets them to the turn, you should put out there. Because people generally are not good at folding once they get to the turn of river. They're good at folding high cards, 
That's why I say if you're going to bet small on them, I mean, if you're going to bet the turn as a bluff, bet small on the flop so you can get a lot of high cards and just crap, crap pairs that will fold on the turn. Because if you bet half pot and they call, like, it's going to be really hard to get rid of them. So if you, want to take, if you want to get value, yeah, you can go 40%, 50%. If you want to be game theory optimal, you can't always do that. But I, I would like to stress the best way to do this is to get to know poker players. When they're talking, do not be dismissive. Listen. When they're discussing how they played their hand at the end, don't be dismissive. Listen. Just as if this were your son and you were genuinely interested in how they were playing this card game, they just got a hold of. That's how you have to be with most of these people because most of these people, you might have played millions of hands in your life. Or you might have played hundreds of thousands. If you play live, maybe you've played tens of thousands. A lot of these people are under 10,000 hands or under 5,000 hands. They're still learning. It's going to be hard to know what they're thinking unless you pay attention. But generally, I would probably screw it up because the 90% bet is something you do in tougher games. I probably should have prefaced that a little bit more harshly, so that's my fault. Sorry about that. I, I hope this helps. Okay. And the next question is from G. And this one is, Hello, Alex. Would you recommend this stop-and-go move when defending your 79 big blind stack on a chicken board with no hand equity, or only when you hit any piece of the board, like any pair and any draw? Thanks in advance. Uh, this is... Uh, you're, you're welcome, G. Uh, <clears throat> this is... I, I think... For you guys to know the definitive answer for anything, I just want to say this really quickly before we go forward you have to think independently you can't let anyone tell you what to think so I'm going to give you what I understand the answer to be I'm pretty sure it's the right answer but I said when I brought this up the first time a couple weeks ago I said this is the simplest thing to put in Cardrunner's EV this is by far, one of the easiest calculations you can do in that program. And I was really hoping you guys would go do it because you would find it's not that hard to work out. And I, if you do that, I was always very pleasantly surprised. It wasn't 100%, but I was always very surprised by how much better you did just stopping going with eight big blinds than if you just jammed. Because the thing being, if you jam pre-flop, almost nobody folds here. So assuming you have a two-card hand that's not paired and is not dominating your opponent, which is going to be the vast majority of the time, you have a 10% edge on them. And that means... If they could see the pot odds with the blinds and annies out there, they should call. They don't make, like, they're not making tons of money. You're both making a small amount. You're just chopping up what's in the middle of the pot. But if you call there and jam and you ever, let, let's do it like this. Let's say 
you call with, uh, let's say you were going to rejam King-10 off, right? And your opponent had King-Queen. If you call and the board comes King-254, or excuse me, it comes 254. You have King-10, they have King-Queen. Yeah, let's do that. And you just jam, which is, by the way, going to be over the size of the pot, and they full king high. Like, that is, I cannot describe to you what an equity bonanza that is. That's incredible. So, again, though, you shouldn't trust me. I want you guys to go out and do it yourself, because there's a whole lot of, I have it on pretty good authority. There are poker coaches that, put together strategies that they kind of know the back door to. They, they know if somebody is a practitioner of it, they'll know how to take advantage of it. And I don't mean like they know the counters to their own plays. Like they're kind of building the strategies in a way that if they know who their players are, they can take advantage of them. And the safest way for you to conduct your life is to think independently. If anybody tells you something, say, show me the evidence. Now, since this is a podcast, I can't show it to you, but you can go get it yourself. And generally, what you're going to find, what I found with seven and nine big blinds, is, yeah, if you call and just jam on any board, it's better for you. Um, Should you only jam if you hit, you'll still make money, but not as much. And I think if you check fold with the best hand, that's really bad. So I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I can't remember what that number came out to. I can't remember if that was better or worse than just jamming preflop. I know it wasn't bad. Like, it wasn't you're losing a ton of money. It was just not as good as just jamming. I was really surprised when I was doing the math for the Myth of Poker Talent. I really... When I was writing that book, I was very self-conscious because it was my first book, and I wanted to make sure I did the calcs enough time so there wasn't going to be anything in the book where I went, oh, crap, once it came out, and I did some more math, and there was a section of that book where I talked about stop and goes, and I was very surprised how many of them I ran where it just, you could just jam like anything it it seemed like and nobody really knew how to call you nobody really knew what to do and even when I was programming a you know button in this case to call with very very little on the flop what I learned from that is most of the time you just have nothing on the flop so if every one of those hands Big blind is pockets, five big blinds, or four big blinds, or whatever is in the middle. It's that is a tremendous wall to climb up uh, for any anyone. So, it, anyways, I, I hope that helps you. G, thanks for writing in. Okay. Okay. And, oh, Alex, I can hear feedback for the first time. Oh, finally! I, I thought I rigged it up. Here, I'll mute the mic. Go ahead. Maybe the second time, actually. I'll let the first one slide. Um. <laughs> Okay, we got time for uh, one more question, and this one is from Tim. Hello, I'm thinking about taking some shots with part of my bankroll. Do you suggest I would be better taking shots at live games, okay, softer players but higher expenses, or some bigger online tournaments? 
possibly tougher players, but I don't have the cost of travelling and extra added expenses of live games. Thanks. Well, there's going to be different answers for different people. I, I always liked taking my shots online because online, typically, I could take a great deal of data. And as long as I was watching every single hand, which was very easy to do online because I would have the hand history replayer typically on most sites, I felt as if, if I believed my skill level was such that I could hang in those tournaments, and I was also paying attention to every hand and thinking deeply about the decisions and not making any play that the next day would make me disgusted with myself, which meant if I didn't know what to do, I typically folded. I never felt that taking a shot was unwarranted. If I played live, a lot of live players have a way to get under your skin. And you have to be aware of that. And it's easy to let someone get you in a live environment because you're away from home, you're in people don't realize that card rooms are very loud. That labored hiss of a dying snake known as the chips being shuffled, it just permeates your skull after a certain period of time. And if you feel as if you're really good with people or if you feel you're much more patient live, and there are definitely students of mine who feel far more comfortable in a live environment, they like the speed a bit more, they feel as if they pay better attention, by all means play live poker, but I'm a nerd, so my personal opinion, which might not apply to you, but my personal opinion is if I'm taking a shot... I love taking a shot at a higher stakes tournament and I love just one table in that tournament and the minute that table started looking up everybody on statistic tracking software, looking at everybody on websites that track that, looking at looking up everybody on Pocket Fives and Hendon Mob and writing down notes about every hand watching every hand, that always made me feel as if I really played a high-stakes game. Because a lot of us, if we're perfectly honest, we know this is gambling. We take a recreational amount, and we, know, we should know that we're going to lose it most of the time. So we're paying for an experience, much in the same way if we paid to play in a three-on-three street basketball tournament. We would know most of the time we're not going to win, but we want to play some games before that's over, and we want to play some hard games. We want a close game. We want a fighting chance. We don't want to go in there and in the first round just get our ass handed to us. So... For greater learning and for greater enjoyment, I really think it's important to play one online table, watch every single hand, write notes about anything you want to, get as much information about the players as you can, 
really focus on what are they opening. What are they opening? How can I take advantage of that by three betting more? When am I going to do that? What uh, did this guy not go for three streets with a value bet? Did this guy not go for it when he had the hand? Uh, what does that mean about if he triple barrels versus me? And things like that. Just get thinking about it and trying to formulate answers. And you don't have to get perfect at it to take advantage of other players. You, you just need to be more observant. And generally, you're going to have a bit of an edge because most people are not paying attention in live poker or online poker, especially I notice in live just because of the speed of play, it's very easy to drift off. It happens to everybody. Whereas online, I feel like you can play the hand back. You have your music there. You can hang out. The other thing is, I think live poker is going to be here for a really long time. Online poker is going to be facing a lot of problems in the coming years. That's my personal opinion. And, yeah, just just from... The other thing I really want to emphasize one more time is if you don't know what to do, fold. You don't want to take a shot and then wonder why you called off all your chips, bluffed off all your chips. I think there's actually some value in having some gumption and betting off all your chips, but usually there's very little value in calling it off. Nine times out of ten, you just got worked by a pro. Whereas if you never give them that big pot, and when you do play a bigger pot, it's on your terms, and by your terms I mean your hand, you're going to be tough to beat. Not impossible to beat, but tough to beat. And that's really a place that I think you should learn to enjoy being. That place in the tournament. That way of playing the tournament. And do not focus on financial rewards at all. Focus on getting better, enjoying playing the game on your terms. This is something, if you want to learn how to do this, I think senior citizens do this really well. I, I don't know how it is in the rest of the country, but in the United States, they, you'll see a lot of guys, a lot of guys in their 50s, and I admire them, and ladies too. They take their time when it's their turn. They think about it, and they'll only play a hand if they damn well want to. If they think two pairs is bad, they're folding. If they don't know what to do, they just fold, and then when they do know what to do, they go for it. And I think that's why that age group is represented in nearly every final table you see. Even though tournaments are supposedly an endurance game, you almost always see somebody in that age bracket at the final table. Because it takes a little wisdom to know you don't have to win every hand. In the words of uh, my trainer, tournament poker, we were talking about tournament poker one day because he's pretty cool like that. And he said, the thing I always understood about tournaments was it, what, it's not about the hands you win. It's about the hands you don't lose. If you can just focus on not losing that big pot, that's a really powerful tactic. Paul Phillips said something very similar when he had a brief foray into poker. And, yeah, as far as which one would you pick, I think 
it's more to your personal style. I always thought I could give a shot more of a college try online. Some people just feel very keyed in when they play live, and I, God bless them, have fun. If you're going to play live, I'd really recommend you. I'd really recommend you just have a note file open on your smartphone. Then everybody will think you're texting. You can just write down in there, and you don't have to write everything. I think what's really important is what did somebody open from where? And if any of those hands are unsuited, crap. Unsuited aces. Unsuited connectors. Uh, just two gappers. Suited two gappers. Just any garbage hand. You're not going to have to look far. That guy usually lets himself be known pretty quick. I just want you to three bet that guy mercilessly. I just, I just go for it. Just, I, I, that's the big thing. Don't show up there and not play. Go for it on your terms. And the other really important note to me was always, does this person paw control? If you see somebody check back a top pair, check back a second pair. That lets you know when they lead into you in position, they have a very polarized range and it's a lot more junk. Because it's just easier to have junk. So you should call them down a little wider. You can check raise bluff if you'd like. Another thing I always noticed live was who is calling down and just mucking a lot of hands. If you see that guy, and that guy's also opening a lot, like you just got to go after him. You have to three bet him every time he opens. I mean, just with any suited gap or suited two gap or anything, because most people are only going to four bet you with queens, kings, or aces, and a lot of people don't even four bet queens. Therefore, they call you out of position you think about that, that's the biggest edge you can have. Nobody can make money from the big one. You cannot find that on any database. You know why? Because it is a forced bet out of position. When you three bet someone, excuse me, when somebody three bets you and you're out of position and four betting is not an option, somebody has just forced you into a bet out of position. It is the same thing. You can manufacture a scenario where a person is in the big blind again. And nobody takes advantage of that. It's considered not kosher. If you three bet three hands in an orbit, be prepared to be ridiculed as you walk away from the poker table. You are not a player in their eyes, and they're going to let you know it. How dare you? But go after it. Go after it. Get, get, get mocked. Get, get in trouble. Do it on your terms. Don't, do, don't play the way they play. I, used, I consulted for gaming sites for years. Gaming companies. I've seen their spreadsheets, their data. 90, 95% of poker players are losing money. So in general, you're not a winning poker player until they're all making fun of you. You cannot, if you're doing what everybody else is doing, by definition, you're playing like a loser. 
even if it were 15% lower, 20% lower, that would still mean 7 out of 10 people is not making money. So again, if the majority does not care for you, that's usually a very good indication that you're doing something right. And those tips I just gave you will let you know how to push the envelope, in my opinion, in the right way. I hope this helps you, sir. Good luck to you. Okay. And that's all the time we have this week for questions. Alex, how can people get in touch with you for your upcoming projects and existing webinars for sale, etc.? Well, everybody, uh, I have a sale going on this month because somebody pointed out to me that I had not done a sale since last summer or eight months ago or something like that. So Master of the Flop is right now $100. Master Tournament Poker in one class is $100. I'm going to give Barry the link to my store. You can check that out right now. That's probably just going to last till the end of April. And... Uh, yeah, uh, sign up for my newsletter at pokerheadrush.com. Uh, you'll know it's my blog because it's a butt-ugly site, but if you sign up to the email list on the top right, you are going to get an email practically every day with a free podcast, <coughs> free article, free video, something, uh, and a lot of exclusive articles, articles I don't publish anywhere else, just stuff I only want to tell the thousands of you on my email list and not the however many read poker news, just stuff I want you guys to know. So be sure to sign up for that. Sign up for my YouTube channel at Assassinato Coaching. You can write me for anything at Alex at PokerHeadRush.com or AssassinatoCoaching at gmail.com. Okay. And keep your questions coming in for Alex on future shows. Please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group, and we will get them read out on a future show. Alex, thanks again for your time this week. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Go Mets! The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with $1 million on the table every week. Yes, $1 million guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1 million guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.